Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. People of the post-everything nightmare afterscape, it is I, Lord Mayor of the Great Rubble Field, next to the Old Rubble Pit and north of New Rubble Mountain, I come before you now to do our nightly lesson before this lovely trash fire. Before you begin, O Great Lord Mayor of the Afterscape, I have a question regarding message I wrote on some birchback and sent to my mother who lives west of the land of the silent cannibals who schmooze on human food. You're going to have to bring that up with our Director of Information Technology. Who's that? It's that Jack Russell Terrier sitting right over there. Now before we begin, a moment of silence for Martin, who was killed today by the nano-wolves, and Eleanor, whose head was exploded by the dream extruder wizards. That's plenty. Also, some love for John Paul, who today got us, wait for it, a functional shopping cart. Now tonight's lesson will be a reading from a work of cyberpunk. What is cyberpunk? It's a kind of story from the past about a world in which computers were used to control and spy on people and and where people were alienated by rapid technological change and mechanistic invasions of their bodies. Are computers the blunt objects which used to hum and click? Yes. And they worked in this shiny pastime of the cyberpunking? Yes. No. Well, they, they worked, but it wasn't very good. And the sciencing was not dead yet. It seems like a happy utopia. Yesterday, I strangled a mutant with an old mouse cord. Look, you people are not getting this at all. Cyberpunk was about a society where human rights were degraded because technology became too powerful. My grandmother says there were toilets that knew when you stopped peeing and flushed themselves. A magical marvel of ancient goodness. Mm, What's a toilet? You know what? That's it. No story time tonight. You people just don't get it. Instead, listen to this other thing that'll explain cyberpunk. And now his new novel envisions a world in which the solar panels turn against us. Colin McEnroe. <laughs> they seem nice, those solar panels. So yes, to those, to those poor people living in the post-apocalyptic afterscape, which is also known as year seven of the Trump administration, um, cyberpunk, boy, that sounds pretty good. The computers work and everything. Uh, but in fact, cyberpunk was imagined quite differently, has been imagined quite differently since it burst onto the scene uh, somewhere around 1980. Um, let me read you a little piece of uh, cyberpunk, a uh, little uh, bit of prose. Over the past year or two, someone has been probing the defenses of the companies that run critical pieces of the Internet. These probes take the form of precisely calibrated attacks designed to determine exactly how well these companies can defend themselves and what, what would be required to take them down. We don't know who is doing this, but it feels like a large nation state. China and Russia would be my first guesses. Okay, you probably figured out that's actually not cyberpunk. That was published yesterday uh, on a site called Lawfare by uh, one of their security columnists. And, and that's kind of the point, right, that cyberpunk um, anticipated a world much like the world that we live in, which doesn't mean that there aren't more cyberpunk stories to tell. And we have guests here today to, A, explain to you uh, how cyberpunk came to be, what its values and its aesthetic are, and then also what stories still exist to tell 
uh, within that genre, within that vein. Uh, in studio with me is Lee Grossman, who teaches at the University of Connecticut and is the author and editor of more than a dozen books, including Sense of Wonder, A Century of Science Fiction. This is a compilation sitting right next to me. It's a massive compilation of science fiction. You could work out with it. Um, Paul Filippo uh, has written more than a dozen books, including the Steampunk Trilogy and Fractal Paisley's. Uh, John Shirley has written novels in just about every genre, from horror to historical to fantasy. He's also the author of City Come a Walkin', which is considered by some to be the first cyberpunk novel. Um, and a little bit later, towards the end of the show, we're going to talk to one of our favorite TV critics, Willa Paskin from Slate. We're going to talk, to, talk about Mr. Robot, which is winding up its second season, um, kind of regarded to be one of the instances of cyberpunk, uh, the cyberpunk aesthetic, making it onto the television screen. There's lots of cyberpunk movies. We'll be talking about those, too. But Lee Grossman, I'm going to have you get us started. Um, we always have kind of a, a multifaceted audience. Some people are, are probably fairly well imbued in the world of cyberpunk and have read a lot of novels and seen the movies and can throw the term around. And for other people, it might be a completely new word. So um, help us out here. Uh, when we say c- cyberpunk, what are we saying? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I, I think we're say, talking about two different things. The uh, the visual aesthetic of, of cyberpunk, which uh, is we've sort of gotten away from. Super influential, uh, probably best known for, for things like the visual of, of Blade Runner and hugely influential on things like anime. But I think when we talk about cyberpunk today, we're, we're talking a lot more about uh, this, this underlying sense of, you know, world run by giant corporations, people who... Uh, characters who who don't have any realistic hope of victory but are are still fighting on, um, but but aren't going to win. You know they they don't necessarily have good odds. Even the things that seem like good guys are are bad guys in in many cases. I I think something that came out of that, uh, you know, late seventies. You know when I when I was a kid, it seemed like a, a revolutionary time. I was you know working the phone lines for the ERA. It seemed like civil rights movement was about to, you know, accomplish things. The women's rights movement, gay rights movement was just getting started. And then it all sort of came crashing down. And, uh, you know, the, not only was there this huge counter movement, but it was super well-funded and super corporate. And uh, I think there was a big response to that. And a lot of cyberpunk came out of that sense of there is no revolution within the system. There is no way to to change things that we thought uh, control that we we thought was that we were going to have things that we thought we were going to change have, have all turned into talk about tax cuts. Well, there's one place that cyberpunk um, reaches back to for a lot of its ethos, right? I mean, in some ways, it was a science fiction extension of what we consider to be noir detective fiction. There, it's not true in every single work of cyberpunk, but there's this idea of this lone hero, sometimes a person kind of damaged by something else that had happened to him before in this particular world, trying to right certain wrongs, trying to extract some kind of meager, meager moral victory uh, in, in a world that doesn't necessarily reward or enshrine morality. You mentioned Blade Runner. We can't uh, give you listeners the visual aesthetic of Blade Runner that Lee Grossman mentioned, but we can remind you a little bit of the sound of it. This is uh, Harrison Ford playing Rick Deckard, uh, who's an investigator. He's a detective. He's a noir detective. He's trying to figure out whether a character named Rachel is an android uh, known as a replicant uh, in the world of Blade Runner. You're reading a magazine, you come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. 
The entree consists of boiled dog. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions, and consequently, we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. So Rick Deckard is kind of Philip Marlowe, uh, a few uh, hundred years or however many years removed. He's this guy who, you know, he's not exactly strictly ethical, not strictly moral, but he's our set of eyes, right, encountering all these things, including some pretty cynical rich people, which often were the stuff of Raymond Chandler novels, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely cyberpunk is something that did reach into noir fiction and draw on a lot of uh, noirish tropes, uh, combining them with... Uh, the aesthetics of a new computer movement, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, and, and yeah, William Gibson will joke that he in- invented the concept of cyberspace because he didn't like to write transition scenes. But uh, just combining the new technology with noirish ideals and, and in some ways getting away, you know, using that to get away from a science fiction that was all about hopefulness and, you know, corporations can solve problems and such and, and into, no, this is about money. And and we're actually hearing also in that particular exchange, and that's Blade Runner. That goes back a few years. The, uh, not a new idea uh, at that time, but an idea that's more and more pressing for us. What happens when you invent an artificial intelligence, a machine, when you make a thing that uh, can have some level of consciousness, some lo- level of self-awareness, and in this case, uh, a decision even to conceal from the machine that it is a machine. Th- this is the kind of question which we're still wrestling with right now that seems to be the very stuff of cyberpunk. Yeah, and th- that question wasn't new to cyberpunk, but the idea that you might want to be become a machine instead of a human being to get away from your pain was certainly a, a new way of looking at things, as opposed to this is the next step in, in human evolution. It, it was... Uh, very much about desperation, much more than hopefulness. Producer Jonathan McNichol is pointing out to me that Blade Runner is set in 2019. (laughs) That's 28 months from now, he says. All right, so yes, way, way in the future. Sorry about that. All right, let's uh, uh, go to our two uh, author guests who are joining us by phone. Um, First of all, John Shirley, um, William Gibson, whose name comes up over and over again, it's been mentioned a few times already here, but he once called you patient zero of the cyberpunk movement. Um, What do you think he meant by that? Um, because I probably belong to all the different levels of, you know, that, uh, of the characters in, in cyberpunk novels, um, embodied. I was uh, a guy from the street to a large extent. I wasn't living on the street, but I was really close to it. And I was in, I was in punk rock bands. And at the same time, I was very, very attracted to, uh, new, everything, in the way of like new technology that could be used uh, by people on the street. I think it's Gibson, was it Gibson? Or maybe it was Paul here who said that uh, 
Uh, cyberpunk is about the streets' uses for technology. Hmm. Paul, you, Paul well, let's ask him. Let's ask him if he said that. Paul DiFilippo, did you? Is that a, a quote we could ascribe to you? Hi, Colin. A Hi. pleasure to to be at this uh, stimulating discussion today. Uh, I think John's remembering. Uh, I'd love to take uh, credit for that quote, but I think um, uh, John's remembering uh, Bill Gibson's uh, famous line: uh, "The street finds its uses for things," um, yeah. which was which was uh, central to the uh, cyberpunk aesthetic. Was that um, uh, technology? Uh, a lot of exciting new digital. Uh, Technology began at the highest levels of, of institutions and society. You know, DARPA, the uh, defense uh, research organization, and IBM and all the universities, they uh, created and perfected this technology, and then it filtered down um, to um, uh, the proletariat, so to speak, and, and, uh, and you know, below even them, the punks and, and the outsiders. And what they did with the technology was often unpredictable and uh, sometimes dangerous, sometimes beneficial, but it was, um, uh, it was uses that had never been envisioned by the people who invented the technology. So uh, that was the main element of um, cyberpunk. How is this, you know, we have these formal official uses for things. You're only supposed to use... Uh, uh, an iPhone to you know for what it's intended for, but but if you hack it and uh, suddenly you're using it to uh, set off car bombs, that's that's not such a good thing. And yeah, and that's yet a good it's, example. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yet it's uh, uh, something that we need to examine uh, because it's it's bound to happen sooner or later. Well, I mean, yeah, every technology has a dark side, and and uh, that is something that we bring to it too. The cyberpunk writers brought to it is that every technology has a dark side and. And uh, and it has you know that the dark side is a shadow that you can work within to get things done that you need to do for uh, the those struggling um, on, in the underclasses, and that can be a good thing. But um, the the dark side can also be exploited by people from uh, you know uh, Russian the Russian mafia uses. Uh, a, hackers now and uh you know they don't care who they hurt so this we're having a constant you know struggle it's kind of a class struggle played out in technology um and and uh there's a there's a shifting back and forth uh, you know like um sky melnick who was the famous uh hacker has you know now works for big corporations exposing hackers and so you know, uh, you there's a, there's a, this movement through the system of, of like from the the lowest classes to the highest, and then the the lower classes take from the higher and and use them uh, uh, on the street again, and um, it's uh, and it has always had that noir flavor. That's in noir too, you know. Yes, but uh, I think it's also about science fiction growing up, and really people looking around. Um, and you know, at the uses of science and technology in an adult way, um, that's what it's what it, what it really was for us. Now it's come to to represent uh, for most people a kind of anime or comic book, or and those those things are cool. But originally, it had that that core sense of a startled adults turning around and looking at the world that was growing up around them, which is you get from Blade Runner, which you then got in turn from Philip K. Dick. 
Um, he was really the godfather of, of cyberpunk, Philip K. Dick. But, you know, Paul, you know, when we talk about a, a dark side, I mean, it seems to me that this that, that most cyberpunk narratives begin with a notion of something that has fallen already, right? There's this Edenic corruption that has gone on. The egg is cracked. The apple is bitten into whatever was going to be really good or had the, op- the option or the possibility of being a, a gleaming utopian delivery system of techno- technological uh, relief uh, and maybe uh, transience uh, uh, or transcendence uh, is it's broken. It didn't work. It got hijacked uh, by people with a, a lot of money and power and influence. So it, 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 maybe I'm wrong about this, that's, but it, no, that's an excellent point. It's it's um, in in a lot of senses the the cyberpunk protagonist was on kind of a redemptive course. They did see this shattered landscape. This these broken dreams and even if they were just trying to carve out a little personal niche of uh relief and and safety for them and their friends it uh there was i think um uh always a um attempt to because that's the you know that's the philip marlowe role he's got to right the wrongs mm-hmm. that are um uh that are out there even if it's only for one individual case one individual murder or uh or bribery uh, case, uh, he, he's trying to um, uh, restore the balance. So I think, um, you know, the cyberpunk was not on the side of the darkness by any means. It was, it acknowledged the darkness. Sometimes that was the starting place, as you mentioned. Uh, but I do think that um, there were always some uh, uh, redemptive, uh, there was a redemptive impulse in the literature at its best. So, yeah, go ahead. Lee Lee Grossman, I want to just go to you for a second. You may want to respond to what they just said. But I also uh, want to talk about how quickly this vision took hold, too. So, you know, I mean, whatever it was that began, it began somewhere around 1980. We can can nitpick about, like, what the first thing ever was. Uh, But by the late 1980s, this was like a really dominant aesthetic, at least in terms of visions of the future. Try to picture what the next phase of life is going to be, and you were getting this. Yeah, although— the, the movie Blade Runner bombed when it first came out for, mm-hmm. for all that it became a cult hit later. I think there's an uneven development issue there. Um, I kind of push back a little bit about, you know, cyberpunk isn't dystopian in, in the sense of uh, the Hunger Games kind of thing. The whole world mm-hmm. hasn't fallen. And in fact, to people on the inside, it, it's, it is utopian in, in many cases. It's mm-hmm. dystopian to the people who've been left behind, the people who have, you know, are... are the cyberpunk characters in, in much the same way the 50s are, are pushed as this golden age for a lot of people unless you were black or female or, you know, someone who wasn't on the inside, you know, and that's who the, who the Philip Marlowe is uh, pushing for. Uh, it's broken, but it's not broken for everybody. And it's it's broken in a way that you, you get a lot of pushback against the characters of, no, you're the one breaking it when, when in fact they're the only ones fighting back against the system. It, it seems but in the real world, yeah, go you've got guys like Professor Steve uh, Mann up in Toronto. Uh, they, he, you see him on uh, the new Werner Herzog movie, uh, Lo and Behold, mm-hmm. uh, and you can find him on the internet. He's, you know, he's he has a permanent uh, device that's that's like uh, bolted to his head that you know, allows him to, to uh, look at the world with more acuity, he thinks, and, with, and certainly with more technological um, sensitivity as he moves through it. And, um, and uh, he's invented all these uh, wearable 
uh, devices. And, and he, you know, guys like him are the fulfillment to some extent of what we predicted. He, uh, and he's also got this thing that fascinates me, this idea of surveillance. And this kind of applies to what you were just saying, that it, uh, it's this looking from below at technology that's looking from above. So you're using technology uh, from literally, again, from the street level, um, to look back at the surveillance that's going on. Um, you're staring back at surveillance, and it's, um, it's this, this constant surveillance, this, you know, um, the cameras everywhere and, and uh, facial recognition that's coming in more and more. Well, he's got the, he's got the de- devices that t- that show you literally when these fields are are turned on around you where you you know like you when when you're in the field of a camera and uh, and, and help you look back at the at the surveillers. Um, that's kind of very that's real, but it's also very symbolically something cyberpunk uh, right from the stories. Yeah. No, I I, I use uh, my novel Black Glass. Sorry, go on. No. Well, I mean, in fact, uh, well, there's so many ways that we could go from there, including the fact that, you know, in some ways he's sort of he's like the last stronghold of the French Foreign Legion or something. I mean, the, the, a society, there's a society that we live in that's sort of given in on a lot of that stuff. I mean, people are very comfortable, uh, I think, for the most part, or have just latently accepted the idea that they're on camera, they're being monitored. They're, I mean, I just I don't even know if there's the requisite amount of outrage for most people. But uh, we can come back to that in a second. But um, one thing, Paul, I wanted to talk a little bit about, too, I think another thing that cyberpunk anticipates in a really interesting way, both as Aesthetically and politically is the notion that the resting state of the American hegemony is 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 not going to last much longer. And of course, I mean, that's another reality we're probably living right now. There's this sense that the aesthetic of cyberpunk swings over, first of all, to a much more Pacific Rim uh, look uh, at things. And there's this kind of notion that um, the rest of the world isn't going to change into the United States. The United States is probably in certain ways going to have to change into the rest of the world. Well, you know, that, that was very prophetic. We're seeing it. Um, uh, you know, we had 1989 uh, come and go, the, uh, which, uh, uh, as you say, you know, coincided with, with the real crest in the, in the cyberpunk movement, and the, the real-world political landscape changed uh, incredibly, and uh, we're living in, in the fallout of that now where it's not a... Uh, uh, it's a totally multipolar world. The U.S. is uh, arguably the last remaining superpower of its dimensions. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it's finding our country is finding that uh, we cannot possibly impose our uh, our vision and our wishes on on the entire rest of the globe. And that um, uh, was being um, uh, was being uh, thought about in in the early cyberpunk. You you talk about the roots of cyberpunk. Um, uh, you can go way back to the '60s. Uh, uh, a great humorous writer, and I think that um, cyberpunk uh, doesn't get enough credit for a certain level of black humor. But but uh, a guy who was totally humorous back in the '60s. He's still around. He doesn't write quite as much as he used to. Ron Goulart, and he had a series oh, yeah. of novels. Uh, he had a series of novels about a fragmented 
USA that I read as a kid and were just seminal influences on me when uh, even in the background of my writing when I was thinking in cyberpunk terms and I need to go back to them because as I recall they really the USA had fragmented into uh, enclaves you know rednecks in the south and uh, uh, liberals in California and the west coast and stuff and it was very uh, premonitory of a lot of the stuff that that cyberpunk was thinking about and maybe even uh you know a political landscape that we're looking at today so science fiction did have you know there were always precursors and forerunners to these uh, to these concepts and it's fascinating to put together a lineage of uh of this kind of stuff all right we're going to take a quick break here we're going to come back we've got more to say about all this uh, uh, especially the way in which we maybe are kind of living in cyberpunk as opposed to reading it to get ready for what we're going to live in as they fall asleep will robots dream of electric sheep sometimes All right, we're talking about cyberpunk. This is getting very interesting. Uh, Lee Grossman is here with me. He teaches at the University of Connecticut, is the author and editor of more than a dozen books, including Sense of Wonder, A Century of Science Fiction. On the phone is Paul DeFilippo, who's written more than a dozen novels, including the steampunk trilogy and Fractal Paisley's. John Shirley has written novels in just about every genre, from horror to historical to fantasy, uh, and he's the author of City Come Walkin', which is considered by some to be the first cyberpunk novel. We're going to be talking a lot in the third segment about Mr. Robot, but just to kind of set up this conversation here. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Mr. Robot's main character, Elliot, who's having a session with his therapist. I know you have a lot to be angry about, but keeping it to yourself and staying quiet like you're doing, it's not going to help you. There's pain underneath. That's where our work needs to go. And what is it about society that disappoints you so much? Oh, I don't know. Is it that we collectively thought Steve Jobs was a great man, even when we knew he made billions off the backs of children? Or maybe it's that it feels like all our heroes are counterfeit. The world itself's just one big hoax. Spamming each other with our burning commentary masquerading as insight. Our social media faking as intimacy. Or is it that we voted for this? Not with our rigged elections, but with our things, our property, our money. I'm not saying anything new. We all know why we do this. Not because Hunger Games books makes us happy, but because we want to be sedated. Because it's painful not to pretend. Because we're cowards. society. Elliot, you're not saying anything. What's wrong? Nothing. All right, that's uh, Elliot's uh, inner soliloquy uh, about uh, about what's really going on in society. Uh, I hear echoes of the comedian Bill Burr talking about Steve Jobs. Uh, he says, really, the old charger doesn't fit the new phone? That's your hero? Um, so um, uh, Lee Grossman, uh, this kind of feeds into something you were saying kind of during the break, which is that to a certain degree, we have absorbed the kind of dark paranoia uh, about the stranglehold that maybe transnational corporations have over our political process. It's probably even seeping into our attitudes right here in 2016. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of the resurgence of, of cyberpunk as, as a uh, an ethos, that, that sense of um, 
you, you talked about nation states in the, the end of the last segment, and, and with the, the latest treaties and with uh, the ISDs, there's a sense of, of helplessness that, that even the nation state is helpless, that these corporations can sue and win and, and force repeal of, of uh, even anything the nation states can do and try and make things better for people, that there's a certain helplessness against that, not just by the, the cyberpunk characters, but by the governments themselves. Which, I mean, I think when you were saying, I think this is a great point, when you regard a candidacy like Hillary Clinton's where, you know, I mean, her, her platform is incredibly people-oriented and liberally-oriented. It's really about a lot of the kinds of services that people really hope the government can uh, provide to them. But there's some way in, in which people who might be expected to buy it don't buy it. Yeah, I, I think partly because in, you, know, you read cyberpunk and the, the heroes expect to be betrayed. There There are no good options. So even when you... Have a you know someone who's running on an incredibly liberal platform and is is doing all of the things that that on on the one hand we may want. Um, there's this expectation of she's friendly with bankers. We know how this cyberpunk story ends. We're, we're going to be betrayed. It can't be real. Um, John Shirley, uh, not that you were necessarily trying exactly to warn people, but you heard uh, Elliot from uh, Robo, uh, from Mr. Robot, talking about how people vote with their devices, with their purchases. Uh, Matthew Kressel uh, recently wrote YouTube, YouTube as a VR channel, uh, virtual reality channel. Amazon.com delivers packages by drone. People wear computers on their wrists. And you've even got stuff like Fitbit. Uh, the NSA listens to every bite crossing the world. People regularly interact with AIs. I mean, in a lot of ways, cyberpunk has come true, but a lot of it's come become true volitionally. We buy and use a lot of stuff that insert us into that world. Rather than being out on the streets, uh, being this rebellious hero, we've kind of gone along really happily uh, with a lot of this stuff. Do you feel as though cyberpunk lost? <laughs> well, it was about, you know, drama and individual drama. So it, it didn't really have... The, some kind of big overarching political theme in that sense. But that was mostly a subtext. Although in my novels, A Song Called Youth, they got very political. and uh, They they were very much about uh, sort of neo-fascism that creeps in um, in the future. But um, really, you know, it's about the struggle of the individual. But, you know, uh, I really love that line in in, uh, that you just played uh, from uh, Mr. Robot about the uh, how uh, intimacy is is being replaced, or people are trying to replace it with social media. And that's that's very true. It's something very pathetic about uh, social media addiction, and uh, you know we we all indulge in it to, for various reasons, but it's. It is. We're sort of getting up to our waist, and it's and it's rising, and it's coming up to our breastbones, and pretty soon it'll be up to our necks, you know. Uh, and you know, why you see people on the street? They're satirized all the time, and um, in in like political cartoons, and uh, you see people walking around with one another, but staring into their phones, and so it's it it is. <laughs> It is unsettling because you know those phones do, in fact, emanate from big companies. And just try and talk to one of those companies about your real issues with your phone. You, it's so hard to get through the layers into, you know, the to actually communicate with them. They're, they they act as if you can communicate with them, but you can't. And that itself is symbolic. It's like makes them very monolithic. But Paul uh, was the guy who ta- who turned me on to this movie. Uh, hyper reality from Matsuda, 
Uh, and have you seen that? I haven't seen, seen it, no. That? No. It is. It's, you can find it on the Internet. It's a short film, uh, prevents, presents a provocative and kaleidoscopic vision of the future, uh, where vis- I'm reading this, uh, physical and virtual realities merged, and the city is saturated with media. And, you, you know, somebody has something like Google Glasses and more, and that's this lady in South America, and she's just going through her day trying to interface with all this stuff, and she's being bombarded by it. And everything around her is, that she sees is, in a way, uh, it's supposedly sold to us as a uh, higher relationship with, with life and the world around us. But in fact, it's just more advertising, just more layers of advertising that come at us in a whole other way uh, with just a, a few helpful adjuncts. But uh, you know, essentially, uh, the, what we're being we're being sold something that is that is uh, just a, a form of commerce as a, a great gift to us all the time. So well, um, people are beginning to be skeptical about it. They're just beginning to recoil now. I think in a visceral level. I want, you know, I want to draw. I want to example. I want to try to stand that on its head, and I'm going to have Paul DiFilippo do the heavy lifting for me. So, I mean, a- another prism through which we could look at this whole question, or maybe another way we could use cyberpunk as a prism to look at a question, would be in the Apple encryption case, right? This is something that's you know dragged on, been an interesting public debate for about 12 months now. This whole question about whether Al- a- Apple has to give up uh, is its uh, encryption to the federal government in order for the federal government to uh, help uh, fight. San Bernardino-style terrorists. Uh, this is important information for the government to have. So now we're kind of inverting what John uh, John was just talking about. Uh, Apple is almost potentially heroic in its stance saying, no, 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 you can't have that stuff. Or maybe Apple can never be heroic. But you could at least argue, Paul, that cyberpunk and the cyberpunk ethos at least gives people some kind of mental equipment to think about a case like that one. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Maybe there's just two bad guys. That seems very much like a cyberpunk question. Well, let me take let me take a running start at this to, um, uh, at this fascinating uh, uh, topic to go back a little to um, uh, you were talking about how um, uh, we're living in a cyberpunk world and and perhaps we didn't uh, for some reason all our warnings got ignored. I think the um, the most famous case of a prophecy that that actually defeated itself and prevented the thing from happening is still 1984, George Orwell's uh, famous book. And many people will argue that the reason we never fell into a post-World War II scenario that resembled 1984 is because of that very book. It was such a powerful, dramatic warning that it forestalled the actual happening um, uh, that it was intended to warn against. So that that's, you know, that's a pretty high standard uh, to to measure cyberpunk against, and I don't think any piece of science fiction uh, before or since has ever quite accomplished the same thing. But cyberpunk, in a way, was dealing with um, a much more seductive scenario. A lot of aspects, as I think John just mentioned, uh, a lot of aspects of the cyberpunk world were actually uh, pleasant and seductive and seemingly useful and uh, something that we wanted to buy into. So um, so currently, you know, every time something was offered, some new gimmick or piece of technology that, that we should have been a little leery of, um, 
we uh, we bought into it uh, despite cyberpunk, or maybe even because of cyberpunk, because it did seem, you know, there were certain aspects of the future that that seemed very gleaming and shiny and and alluring. So I think, in a way, cyberpunk had a much more conflicted path ahead of it or a role to play because you know we didn't want being science fiction writers we were all technophiles and and gadgetophiles um to begin with and and a lot of the stuff did appeal to us so we might have presented it in ways that were not um that were conflicted that were not totally prohibitive and and um were somewhat alluring so we do the the literature does um hold some role to play in us in the current landscape that we inhabit you know we did maybe we made cyberspace look a little too alluring and that explains why we're all hooked on social media these days <laughs> all right so uh lee grossman you get the last word of this segment yeah i think social media really is an, an illustration of of cyberpunk in, on both sides on, on the one hand it's, it's something that very cynically exists just to sell advertising information, just to, like, you know, Facebook exists to harvest your information and sell it to advertisers in return for which you get social benefits. On the other hand, you have an awful lot of people who who are through social media and, and the social media that's tied into games and such, really tied to people um, online who, who they don't, where they don't feel tied to anybody in person. Uh, tied to, to to people in cyberspace in a way that they don't necessarily feel connectedness in in real life, and that that's not a bad thing. Um, obviously, we've uh, in all the ways that Elliot talks about, we've kind of voted with our own ideas, and, and also with our own with our own search for security. I mean, I mentioned the Apple encryption case. A lot of people actually think the government should just get all that stuff so they can protect protect us from terrorists. Uh, it's not unusual to see articles saying we need more cameras, we need them now. The case for surveillance uh, after the Boston bombing, uh, there were articles like that saying, yeah, put up more cameras, keep us safe. So uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about television's most salient example of the cyberpunk mood right after this. Today's show was produced by the McPants 4000, a transhuman microchip and flesh hybrid engineered to work in public broadcasting, and me, Kyone Wolf, a nano device that sits on the tip of your tongue. Greg Hill and Betsy Kaplan appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Dolph Lundgren. Come find us on Twitter at WNPR Colin and on Facebook at the Colin McEnroe Show page. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about raccoons. And now back to Colin. Well, I saved the most important person for last. Uh, Alex Dubin is the guy who actually thought this show up uh, and began guiding us towards uh, the possibility of doing a show uh, on uh, cyberpunk. He's sitting in the producer's chair today, returning to us, having been an intern with us in the past. So uh, Alex gets the big... Uh, I guess you don't get a gold star in cyberpunk. You get like a degraded microchip or something. Uh, and whatever it is that you get, uh, he gets that uh, shiny little thing uh, for having done this today. Thanks so much, Alex. Lee Grossman is in studio with me, uh, teaches at the University of Connecticut, and is the author and editor of more than a dozen books, including Sense of Wonder, A Century of Science fiction. Joining us now, we love Willa Paskin, one of our really favorite, favorite uh, TV critics. She writes for Slate. Uh, she's written more than once about a show called Mr. Robot, which is uh, wrapping up a season two uh, right about now. Um, Willa Paskin, welcome back to our show. 
Thanks for having me. Um, for those people not lucky enough to have enjoyed uh, Mr. Robot and all its blandishments, uh, I know it's a hard show to sum up, but uh, give us the thumbnail. Uh, Mr. Robot is a show about a antisocial hacker who is trying to bring around the end of capitalism. Uh, that was a good sum up. So, and then, then with that was better than I, uh, easier than I thought it was it was going to be. So, um, in this, there are a lot of the elements of um, of cyberpunk. I mean, do you consider this to be, in fact, an expression of the cyberpunk aesthetic? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the reasons you thought, for example, that that my answer about the show um, was going to be so much longer is it is extremely. Uh, twisty. It has a lot of plot. There's a lot of detail in it. But I think um, maybe the best thing about the show is just its mood, which is extremely cyberpunk and, um, you know, sort of rebellious and eerie and um, menacing and, and in a way that doesn't feel much like other television shows. Um, see, let's see if we can get a little bit at that mood. Uh, we're going to play a clip. Um, I don't think it needs too much uh, explanation. I think it's from season one, uh, episode one. So, Wolfie, that'll be clip C1. Let's let that roll. Your real name's Rohit Mehta. You changed it to Ron when you bought your first Ron's coffee shop six years ago. Now you got 17 of them with eight more coming next quarter. May I help you with something? I like coming here because... Your Wi-Fi was fast. I mean, you're one of the few spots that has a fiber connection with gigabit speed. It's good. It's so good, it scratched that part of my mind, part that doesn't allow good to exist without condition. So I started intercepting all the traffic on your network. That's when I noticed something strange. That's when I decided to hack you. Hack- I know you run a website called Plato's Boys. Pardon me? You're using Tor networking to keep the servers anonymous. You made it really hard for anyone to see it, but I saw it. The onion rooting protocol, it's not as anonymous as you think it is. Whoever's in control of the exit nodes is also in control of the traffic, which makes me the one in control. So, um, Lee Grossman, one of the, you, you can draw a pretty straight line or unbroken line anyway from, um, say, Robin Hood to Philip Marlowe to uh, Elliot here in uh, in Mr. Robot, at least in the sense that um, cyberpunk plays on a very old trope, the idea of somebody who's a little bit more moral than the immoral system around him trying to right wrongs, sometimes using borderline I- illegal or flat out illegal methods, but essentially robbing from the rich, giving from the poor, giving to the poor. In this case, it's more at the level of data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here, there's not much to rob or give, but he's at least doing the right thing when he can. He's, he's um, you know, forces bad relationships to end at times. I mean, things that are, are small and, and uh, there aren't big victories that are really attainable for him for all that, that uh, he's, he's got this intent to, to bring down capitalism. It's, it's not going to go well. You know, not, nothing is, is going to go well the best he can hope for is to be out of pain for a while. So, Willa Paskin, you raised a really interesting question uh, about uh, Mr. Robot. I'm going to read your money quote about this uh, because, yeah, Mr. Robot does have this incredible anti-capitalism. Bring down the big corporations. They couldn't be more evil. They're so evil they're called Evil Corp. Uh, bring them down. Um, uh, here's a, a quote from one of your pieces. Mr. Robot is like an iPhone with an I hate Apple ringtone. Both are beautifully designed, powerful products that are superficially conflicted about being beautifully designed, powerful products. 
For all that Mr. Robot invites us to think about global financial issues, the unchecked power of technology, and imminent societal collapse, it also demonstrates just how efficiently capitalism co-ops all critiques. It can even turn a criminal hacktivist into the poster boy for a cable network. So this is sort of your Theodore Razak point, Willa, that that as subversive as cyberpunk might have seemed to be at times, uh, it's still not something that can't be turned into to a way to sell razor blades or whatever's coming up on the commercials. You should see, if you watch Mr. Robot um, in real time, the commercials that air between Mr. Robot are often in Mr. Robot mode, um, like for security, like, like, other, like other companies are selling like security devices for computers in the commercials for Mr. Robot. It's like, it's almost like you think they're fake commercials, but they're not. It's so, it's so trippy. Um, yeah, I mean, Yes, like Mr. Robot is an extremely successful television show. You know, it is a product. Um, it's been really, really successful for USA. So, um, as subversive as its message may or may not be, and I think in some ways it is really subversive, and it really does have this sort of unique and furious tone. Uh, it's still making a company a ton of money. So, is there anywhere will it to go from there, though? In other words. Um... I mean, in a way, that's like the conclusion of a fairly bleak cyberpunk novel that uh, <laughs> that some character thinks he's invented this incredibly subversive thing. And at the end, it's effectively being used. All of his force is being used in a kind of corporate jujitsu where his strength is turned against him uh, to bring about his own downfall. Is Is your view of it necessarily that negative or is this at least a way for a couple of possibilities to be juggled in the air more or less at the same time? Well, I mean, if you take that really bleak view, I mean, you have to think – I guess I don't take such a bleak view because it's like Mr. Robot is a television show. I think for a television show, it's actually accomplished a lot of really interesting things and um, exploring sort of territory that other shows aren't exploring and opening up all of these questions that we sort of don't talk about very often. Like when was the last time you saw an anti-capitalist television show? I mean, even if it's not really because it's furthering the interests of – a major television network or a major corporation is still raising all these questions, you know? So I don't, I don't think it's like, like in terms of what it is, it's sort of radical Uh, in terms of being radical full stop, you know, it's not, (laughs) but, but I think, um, I think it's, it's done more to sort of um, spark some conversation about these kind of questions that we just weren't having before. I'm actually pitching HBO right now on a sequel to Curb Your Enthusiasm that actually stars Bernie Sanders instead of Larry David, and it will be an anti-capitalist television show. Uh, just a, It'll be a Curb Your Enthusiasm, but much more distrustful of the man. So, Lee Grossman, this is, in some ways, it's the, at the heart of any kind of outsider genre, any outsider aesthetic, is the question of, uh, you know, success means you're not so much on the outside anymore. Um, how do you react to, to Willa's uh, critique that, uh, to a certain degree anyway, it, 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 anything could be co-opted, even something like this. Yeah, I, I mean, but I think that's been at the heart of cyberpunk forever. I, I think, of, you know, one of my favorite stories, uh, Pat Cadigan's Pretty Boy crossover. And, and she's, you know, a wonderful cyberpunk writer who, who didn't come up in this conversation somehow. But, uh, you know, where there's victory, can, it, it has a sort of a happy ending, but it's a temporary victory. We have no idea if the character is going to endure. He's able to resist this for, for the moment at the end of the story. He's able to make things better for... For one person, for one night, you know, and that's a victory of a sort. It's not; it isn't about destroying capitalism, and and uh, it is about making things better. And and 
the the things that create cyberpunk are capitalist things, and and there, there's that paradox within it. It, it can't be totally anti-capitalist, um, but it is about the people at the bottom are using these tools in very different ways to fight back. Um, Willa, do you know yet whether there's a season three coming of Mr. Robot? I don't think officially there's a season three, but I would be extremely surprised if there were not a season three. I mean, it seems as though, just to go back to what we were saying earlier, like just, you know, you watch the whole, I was saying to Lee during the breaks, break, you watch the whole um, Wells Fargo scenario unfold where these company, this company had this policy of getting its employees to gouge and grind and pressure and persuade uh, people to get all these credit cards and other kinds of uh, vehicles that they didn't necessarily want. And then the employees decided to go them one better and just simply issue the credit cards and all the other stuff without even asking consumers. To me, it's kind of like maybe Mr. Robot gives you the goggles, the cyber goggles, to look at something like that and understand it better. That, you know, maybe it's been co-opted, but it's also giving you in some ways a way to look at a story like that from real life and understand it from a different point of view. Yeah, I think that that is true. I mean, I think that it's like you can critique something while still being of that thing. You know, you can have commercials on your show and still critique commercials as the show does. Um, And I don't, I mean, that may undermine the purity of the critique, but that doesn't necessarily undermine the strength of it. Yeah. So, Willa, um, I wear this device on my head that I got from Steve Mann that, first of all, allows me to get messages, see life more accurately. I can actually tell you there's a camera on you right now that I can see mm-hmm. that you can't. But I'm also being told through it that USA has renewed Mr. Robot for a third season as of last month. It will end in 2017. I mean, that that's no, it will air in 2017. Uh, listen, thanks very much to Willa Paskin. We love uh, her writing. Well, we have really enjoyed having Lee Grossman in the studio and certainly our other guests, John Shirley and Paul. Di Filippo, who are seminal writers in the world of cyberpunk. Great show by Alex Dubin, working with Jonathan McPants. We'll be back tomorrow with raccoons. Are you ready? You know, I am continuously in awe of the technology we have here at WNPR. The microphones that we're using from 1984 sound brand new, and the point-and-shoot cameras our reporters use shoot 5 megapixels. And the software we use to trigger audio elements never fails.